reminder that our salvation is rooted not in the quality or consistency of our faith, but in the promises of a God who does not fail. That's such an important truth uh, for me to be reminded of, and I know for many of us as well. So thank you for that reminder. Appreciate it. I'm watching you. If those words are said by a loving parent to a young child trying something for the first time, they're comforting, emboldening for the child. But if you receive those same words in an anonymous text message, that's a little different, right? I'm watching you. What's the difference between the two? What's the source? It's the source of that message, right? If the source of those words comes from a known and trusted source, it's a welcomed message. However, if it comes from a source that is unknown, untrusted, and even scary, it's a threatening message, isn't it? What do we do with those words when they come from God? I'm watching you. What do we do when they come from the Lord Almighty who says, I have my eyes on you? What do we do? How do we respond to something like that? And more than that, how should we respond when the Bible tells us that not only is God watching us, but he knows everything about us? How does that make us respond? Should that bring comfort or concern? Should, should it bring feelings of being protected or exposed? Does it embolden us or threaten us? Does the idea that God has total knowledge of me make me feel liberated or imprisoned? How do I respond to that doctrine? The idea that God knows everything, that he has perfect knowledge, that we might say he is omniscient, that he knows everything. You know, how we respond to that actually reveals a lot about what we think about God. Is he a God that is loving and good and faithful and trustworthy? If so, then him knowing everything is not threatening. But if we think about God, that he is this impersonal, authoritative figure, unknown and mysterious, then it can be a little unnerving. It all comes back to what we think about the source of that message. David, the great king of Israel, he wrestled with this same truth in his life. And, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he recorded his thoughts for us in Psalm 139. And so I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn with me to that psalm. Psalm 139. And we're going to work our way through David's wrestling with this idea that God knows everything and what that means for him in his life and how he responds to that truth. And, and it really reveals a lot about what David thinks about God. And as it was mentioned, we are continuing our study in the attributes of God, and, and we are coming now to this doctrine of omniscience. That God's knowledge is perfect, that there is nothing that God learns. He's not a learning deity. He knows everything already. And so how do we respond to a doctrine like that? And what we're going to find in this, this Psalm 139 is we're going to find this doctrine asserted, and then we're going to find it defended, and then we're going to find it applied, all in this one psalm as David wrestles with this doctrine. So if you found your way there, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. If you're able, Psalm 139. I want to read the entire psalm so we can feel the full force of what David is writing here. You have searched me, Lord, and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them, as, I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Please be seated. As I said, this psalm, it really deals with this doctrine of divine omniscience. And what we're going to see is, is this doctrine being asserted. It's being said by David. He knows everything. And then he's going to defend that doctrine a little bit. And then he's going to apply it to his own life. And we get to overlook. We get to kind of look over his shoulder and see how it applies to our lives as well. And in the first six verses, this first stanza, we see this doctrine asserted. David declaring the totality of God's knowledge. It's... It's an exhaustive knowledge we see. There's, there's nothing about David that God does not know. He knows his actions. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise. God knows his thoughts. You perceive my thoughts from afar. And God knows David's schedule, you could even say. You, know, you discern my going out and my lying down. So from the time David wakes up and leaves the house in the morning to the time he comes back and puts his head back on the pillow, God knows it all. God also knows his propensities, inclinations. You are familiar with my ways. He says, you know me inside and out, and even his intentions before they become reality in verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. There's nothing about David that God does not fully know. In fact, we could probably assume from these verses or gather together that, that God actually knows David better than David knows David, doesn't he? God knows everything. Even before I say anything, you know what's going to come out of my mouth. Your knowledge is exhaustive. Past, present, and future, God knows David exhaustively. Now, we want to be cautious here because we don't want to assume that knowledge means causation. Right? So we don't want to conflate those two things. Just because God knows what David is about to do and David is going to do doesn't mean that God caused David to do things. David is a, a free agent. But God knows what's going to happen. His knowledge is completely exhaustive. 
But it's not only exhaustive. As we move on in that first stanza, we see that, that God's knowledge is also protective, right? In verse 5. He says, you hem me in behind and before, and, and you lay your hand upon me. So here we see a peek into how David views God. I'm watching you. David's not threatened. He says, you protect me. That knowledge of you, it surrounds me on all sides. And your, your hand of protection, that powerful hand, is upon me. It's a comfort to David. In his rebellious times, it may seem constrictive, but ultimately, he says, this is a protection from the Lord unto myself. Because he knows the character of God. He feels safe rather than violated. He's surrounded on all sides by God's perfect knowledge. There's nothing I can do that will surprise you, God. That is a comfort to me. So we see that this knowledge, this all-inclusive knowledge is exhaustive and protective, but it's also exclusive, we find in verse 6. So we come to see that David is just dwelling on this idea that God knows everything about him. And verse 6 comes along, and he says, such knowledge is just too wonderful for me. It's just too lofty for me to attain. I can't get there. No matter how much I learn, no matter how many books I read, no matter how many degrees I collect, I just cannot get to the place where my knowledge is like that of God's. And for those of you who know David, he's a lot of things, isn't he? God's anointed, a man after God's own heart, he's the king of Israel, he's a great warrior, he's a musician, he's all of these things, but one thing he is not, he is not all-knowing like God. This awe-inspiring attribute is exclusively divine. It is God's and God's alone. And so is, it is with many of these attributes we're looking at over this series. There are two categories of God's attributes. There are those that we share, like the love of God. God is love, but we get to love to an extent. An imperfect amount, but we get to love. God's divine knowledge is not something he shares with us. It is his and his alone. And that is what David is in awe of. It is exclusively God's. So he has this doctrine asserted. God knows everything there is to know about me. Exhaustively. There's nothing about me he doesn't know. And as believers, hundreds and hundreds of years later, sometimes we need to stop and just say, do we understand that God knows me the same way that he knows David? That there is nothing about me that surprises God. That he knows my thoughts, he knows my actions, he knows my, my propensities, my inclinations, he knows my intentions. He knows everything about me, and he knows everything about you. At some point, we kind of have to go to that verse 6 and say, again, along with David, I, I try to understand, but ultimately, God, it's too wonderful for me. I can't fully comprehend this truth. In Hebrews, the author, he writes this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Think about that. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He sees it all. I'm watching you, and I know everything. And how we respond to that truth really depends a whole lot upon what we think about God and what we think about ourselves, right? If we see him as this merciful, loving God, he was just but has provided a way to be reconciled with him, then it's not a concern. For those of us who are draped in the righteousness of Christ, it can be a, a, a protection like David saw it as well. But if we see God in, a, in an unbiblical way, that can be a scary reality. But how we respond to this truth of God being all-knowing, it really reveals a lot about what we think about God and what we think about ourselves. Well, in verse 7 of Psalm 139, David shifts from simply asserting this doctrine that God knows everything— to defending it. And it's not an exhaustive defense, but he's just giving a couple of reasons why he knows that God knows all things. 
The first one is in verses 7 through 9, and he says that God knows all things because he's ever-present. He's always there, so of course he knows all things. And a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Jim touched on this attribute, that God is always present. And in fact, Jim pointed at this psalm for that. He said, God is always with us. David says in verses 7 through 9 that he can't go anywhere, anywhere where God isn't already. It's an inescapable presence. And as he moves on into verse 10, it's, it's also an intentional presence. He says, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. It's not like God is present, and he's just standing there in the corner watching us wherever we go. No, he's, he's involved. He's guiding, he's protecting, he's leading. It's an intentional, inescapable presence. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see that it's this unstoppable presence. He says, surely the darkness will hide me, and light become night around me. He says, aha, no way. Not even the dark will stop God's presence. Not even hopelessness, not even sin, not even evil. Nothing will stop God's presence presence from being around him. It's inescapable, it's intentional, and it is unstoppable. And because God is so persistently ever-present, David says, of course he knows everything. Of course he knows everything. We see that these two doctrines, they are separate. He's all-knowing and ever-present, but they are very much linked as well. And David seems to put them next to each other. He's with me when I feel alone and scared. And he's with me when I'm alone and in sin. He's with our dear sister right now, Margaret, as she grieves and her family. She's with you as you've had a tough week. She's with you as you struggle through life, as you celebrate success in life. He's always near, and he is always present, and he knows all things, in our successes, in our failures, in our pains, and our pleasures. God knows all because he is fully present everywhere all the time. But it goes even deeper than that as he continues in this psalm. Not only does God know all because he's ever-present, but God knows us because he is our creator. This is that well-known passage of scripture where he, where he talks about God knitting us together in our mother's womb. Before our days even came to be, he knew all of them. As we go through this section of verses 13 to 16, we see that God created us with, with detail and with care and with, with perfect understanding and wisdom. He's infallible, and he created us perfectly, intentionally. You could ask, who knows more about a piece of art than the artist who conceived of the idea and creatively and, and, and intentionally brought it into being, choosing the right colors, the right brush strokes, everything, so that this piece of art communicates exactly what that artist wanted it to say. And here we catch this sense in Psalm 139 that that's exactly what every human being is, a unique work of art that's pieced together by the careful, creative and infallible hands of the same artist who hung the stars in the sky. It's unbelievable. Every human being, before we have breathed our first breath, is known exhaustively and totally by their creator, and have more dignity and worth than we could, than we could measure because of who made us, and because of whose image we bear. Incredibly worthwhile. And this truth, when we, when we properly understand it, when we wrestle with this idea that God has knit us together with intentionality and his hands don't make mistakes and he is good and perfect, it cuts down all sorts of racism and prejudice right in the face of anything like that. It says, how could you? Believer and unbeliever alike, they bear the image of God. They were knit together with intentionality. How could we possibly demean another human being? How could we do it? It cuts down any sort of prejudice or separation like that. 
You cannot hold prejudices and racism and hold that Psalm 139 is truthful. You can't do it. But at the same time, it also cuts across the pandemic of insecurity and self-loathing and self-hatred that is attacking our culture today. That's so pervasive. And then the culture encourages this, right? That we're not that great. We're not worthwhile. Sometimes the culture even tells us that explicitly. We see this particularly, or so studies show, in young people today. They're struggling with their self-worth and their purposefulness. But yet you go to a passage like this and you say, how can I hold those two things? How can I say I'm worthless and purposeless, and yet God, the almighty creator of the universe who knows me perfectly, knit me together? How can I hold those two things? They're irreconcilable. When we properly understand the fact that God made us this way. And in a group this size, there are certainly people here who are, who have, or who will be wrestling with issues of depression and purposelessness and hopelessness and even thought about ending their own life. And if that's you here today, I just want you to hear what God says about you. Not what I say. Who cares? What God is saying about you. That before you were born, the almighty God of the universe knew you. He intentionally put you together knowing your days. He does not make mistakes. You are unbelievably worthwhile. You are unbelievably valuable. Not because of you necessarily, but because of him who made you and put his imprint upon you. So I understand that, that feelings sometimes trump truth. And that's kind of what Don was pushing us toward this morning as we looked at the table of the Lord. Cling to God's promises, what he has said. And here, as the culture is inundating us with thoughts of, you aren't worthwhile, you're not that great, you are not valuable, all of those things, we need to cling to truths that God says, no, that is nonsense, you are valuable. You are more valuable than you even know. I just want you to hear what God says about you. Forget what the rest of the world says about you. What does your creator say about you? And you are so valuable and so loved that he sent his only son to die for you and for me. How much more valuable can I be? That I would, I would bring about the death of his son, that I may be reconciled to a holy God and spend eternity with him. That's what God wants for each and every one of us, and he's made it possible. Pretty worthwhile. Pretty valuable. So don't let the world tell you any different. We need to cling to truths like that. And we may not always feel known and loved, but the Bible says the exact opposite. You are completely known. And some of us are like, ugh, that's scary. There's some stuff in there I don't know if I want God knowing. And yet, in spite of all of that, he knows you more than you know yourself. He says, I love you enough to send my son to die for you. You are loved, and you are absolutely known. The incredible truths we cling to in spite of what we feel. One theologian who's written quite a bit on this subject, he says this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. There is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is a momentous knowledge, and it truly is. One that we need to remind each other of. We are very worthwhile. We are very valuable because of him who made us. So we see this truth that God is omniscient. 
He knows all things, and I know that it's a truth. We try to wrap our heads around it. It's like, but yeah, but, but, and we, we, we try, because we're coming to the end of our finiteness, and we're trying to comprehend the infinite. But when we come to a doctrine like this, where God is all-knowing, we inevitably have to ask, okay, so what? Right? How do I respond? How do I act in light of this? Let's say that I, I, I accept the fact that he knows all things. I can't understand it, just like David couldn't fully understand it, but I accept it. Okay, he knows me. He created me. He's always with me. What do I do about it? How do I respond? And as I said at the outset, it's kind of neat that right built into this psalm, David includes his application. So you can see this as we read it. You can feel the, the scope of this psalm. He, he states it. This is an incredible truth. I know this because he is always with me and he created me. And now in response, I'm going to do these things. And he has these responses built in in this doctrine applied section, starting in verse 17. The first response that David has to this reality that God knows everything is that he just adores him. He adores God, just like he did in verse 6. We come to verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God! How vast is the sum of them! I can't even comprehend them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And this will come up over and over again in this series. As we learn about who God is, and we, and we want to understand him, it honors him to try to understand who God is. And we should try to understand it. But ultimately, when we examine his, his attributes, we have to come to a, pl- a space where we just say, you're awesome. You're awesome. There has to come to a place where we say, you're just too wonderful for words. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I, I, I can't respond initially in any other way other than David responds with just adoration. And again, as I said last week, this is one of the goals of this series. As we wrestle with who God is, we want to grow as worshipers. People that come in here and when we are confronted with these incredible truths, our first reaction, not is to try to dissect them, but to just stand in awe of him. He's like, wow, you love me that much? And you know all that? And you still love me? That's unbelievable. That's fantastic. And just to be in awe of who he is. So the first application to any divine attribute, including omniscience, is just to adore him. To be in awe of how incredible and, and other he is. He is not like us. He is not made in our image. We are made in his. We don't have to comprehend anything. Just adore him. But David doesn't stay there. The second, it almost seemed when we read this psalm, it almost seems like it's out of place when he shifts at verse 19. But the second response to God's all-knowing nature is that we grow not only in our adoration of him, but our hatred of sin. He grows in his hatred of sin. Did you notice that? All of a sudden he rails against the wicked. He says, I hate those who hate you. How could that be? That seems so out of place. But we understand that when we grow in our awe of God, all of a sudden we just start to to hate the things he hates. About 10 years ago, I was involved in a church in this area. And it was a church that God really used in a season of my life to transform me, to bring me back to himself. And I was part of a small group in this church. And we got very close. And the leaders of this small group were this couple. They were former missionaries. And the wife of this couple was a professional artist and so she would she was a painter and once in a while she would hold shows you know she'd set up shop in in hamilton or in burlington and and put all her art up in an exhibit and people from the public could go through and 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 look at her stuff and maybe even buy some of her art she worked very hard on this stuff and i'm not exactly um, art savvy but i would go to support her and i would stand at these exhibits at this painting and i would you know wax eloquent about the colors or something i just tried to fit in okay So I'm standing there, imagine this, I'm standing there at this painting. 
I'm looking at it. And another person comes up, who I don't know, who's just walking through the exhibit, comes and stands next to me. We're standing there. The person next to me says, wow, what a piece of garbage. <laughs> this is an insult to art. This is no talent nonsense. Can you believe this? This is, this is garbage. I'd be upset. That, that would hurt my heart. But now imagine that person steps over the velvet rope, takes out a sharpie and a kitchen knife, and starts scribbling and hacking at the canvas. This is hypothetical, by the way. Imagine that happened. How would I respond to that? I'd be angry, wouldn't I? Not because I know anything about art, because I love the artist. Because I love the artist. And to destroy something that the artist created offends me. Not, again, because I know the art or anything, but because I love that person. And friends, that is exactly what sin does. Exactly. If we are pieces of art, if we are God's workmanship, as the Bible says we are, and if he loves us so much that he gave his life for us, that Christ gave his life for us, then if we let sin into our life, we have to know that it destroys, that it mars, that it discredits, that it tear down what God said was so beautiful. And if we love the artist and we grow in adoration for the artist, then any sin, whether in my life or in the life of my brothers and sisters in Christ or in the world around me, I have to grow in my distaste for it. It has to offend me. Not because I know everything about sin, but because I love the artist with a capital A. That's what David is doing here. He's just finished being in awe of God's knowledge. You're always with me. You know me so well. You created me. You love me. It doesn't make sense. David was not perfect. We know that. And God still knew everything and loved him. He's in awe of it. And he looks around and he sees sin and the people that hate God. I have to think he saw it in himself as well. We see that in Psalm 51 when he confesses to the Lord. He hates the sin in his life and he, he calls out to it and says, God, I hate what you hate. And that's not very popular in our day and age today. In our culture, we excuse sin. And even in the church, we, we opt for language like brokenness. Isn't that nice? We're broken. And that's true. We are broken. But broken means that it's something that happened to me. I am a participant, a willing participant in sin. So yes, I am broken, but I'm also a sinner. I'd be able to say that and be disgusted with that. Not, not that I hate myself. God loves me. But the sin that mars that image has to leave a bad taste in my mouth. And the more we love God, the more that will be so. And so one response to any attribute of God, including his all-knowing nature, the fact that he knows everything about me, he sees my sin, I have to hate that. I have to grow in my distaste for sin. And I would encourage you, if you're not in the habit already, to keep short accounts with God, to confess to God always, as was already quoted today, if we confess our sins to God, he is just. He's forgiving and he wants to wipe it clean, but we bring it to him, and we say, and we trust him with that promise, and say, God, I've strayed again, and I hate that. Forgive me. We keep short accounts with God, often adding confession to our time with him. So that's the second application that, that David weaves into this psalm. First, he just being, he adores God. Second, he hates sin. And the third, he closes the psalm in verses 23 and 24 with the application of inviting God in. He invites him in. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
God can't know more about me than he already does. He can't be involved in my life more than he already, he can't be more present than he already is. So David's response is just, okay, have your way. Have your way. Show me where I'm straying. You, you come all the way in. Take it all. You know everything anyway. There's nothing to hide anymore. And he lets God in, and he wants to be shown the way everlasting. He wants to walk in the life abundant. He says, God, help me to do that. You know everything anyway. Let me just submit to you. And this is true for everyone in here, no matter where you are with your walk with the Lord. You might be a mature believer who longs to be like Christ, who cannot wait for that day of blessed hope when, when he will appear, and who just, you love the things of the word. And yet we still, we need to be inviting him in. Keep showing me my sin. Keep showing me the way everlasting. Keep showing me the best things of this life. Or you may be here and, and you have followed the Lord in the past, but right now you're cold. And you're rebellious and, and you, don't, you don't like the things of the Lord as much as you once did and you long for it, but it's just not there. And you're here maybe out of guilt or you're here because someone dragged you here and you just, you don't feel that anymore. Invite him in. It's the same application. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your rebellion. He knows everything about you. So invite him back in and say, Lord, steer me back on course. I want to know you the way that David's talking about. I want to know you the way some of my brothers and sisters in Christ do. Help me, please. You know everything anyway. Invite him in. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, invite him in. He died for you. He died for you. And all you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Christ, died for your sins, and rose again. And you will have eternal life, the Bible says. That is the promise of God, a God who cannot lie. Believe him in. Invite him in. So no matter where we are, the application from David is just to invite him in. Expose yourself to a God who already knows everything anyway. Otherwise, we're just kind of fooling ourselves, aren't we? It says, adore him, hate sin, and invite him in. This is a, a well-founded biblical doctrine, that God knows everything, that his knowledge is perfect, it's exhaustive. And how we respond to that truth says a lot about what we know about God. If you hear that today and you say, that makes me uncomfortable. That makes me, I don't like the thought that God sees everything. But I would encourage you to talk to someone. Examine what it is you think about God and what it is you think about yourself. But if you're here today and you know the Lord, and you know that he's good, and you know that he's trustworthy and merciful, and all of those things that the Bible describes him to be, and you hear that God knows everything, it is so liberating and freeing and empowering and life-giving. And David says, invite him in. It's a great thing. He knows everything about you anyway. It's a great truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many things about you that we just cannot wrap our minds around. But I guess that's what makes you God and us not. If we could fully figure you out, you would not be a God worth worshiping. So you are beyond, you are beyond us. And this is just another way. Your perfect knowledge. We thank you for the truth that you know everything about every person in this room, and even the people associated with this church who are not here this morning. You know everything. You know our intentions. You know our thoughts. You know the words before they come out of our mouth. It's a humbling reality. But, Father, it can be a freeing reality. If we turn our life over to you and we say, have your way. Grow in us an adoration for who you are and a, and a hatred for the sin that you hate. Father, turn us into people that look more and more like your son. For your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
the uh, worship team comes and sing, I just wanted to give you a few instructions for those that are staying for our, our newcomers' lunch today. And um, it's just good to have you all with us this morning, and you are all welcome uh, to join us for lunch. But a few instructions that uh, after we sing our closing song, I would encourage you to collect your children from the nursery and Sunday school. And then if you could return back maybe to this part of the auditorium right here, 